in his great 5th century work, The City of God, Augustine famously says this, says that two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. What is very helpful here is that Augustine sees human life, a human society, and human destiny in terms of loves, or if you will, in terms of ordered desires, the affections of our hearts. He creates, if you will, a theology of desire. And this theology of desire has had an enormous impact on the Christian tradition. Though I think it's often overlooked today. Um, Its effects have been large. And I think are worth recovering to some extent. And there are folks out there writing and doing work to attempt to recover this. We tend to think exclusively or almost exclusively in terms of having right beliefs or wrong beliefs, doing the right things and refraining from the wrong things, having certain practices and not other practices. But Augustine is doing something deeper than that. He's developing a Christian psychology. He's often called the father of psychology. He reminds us that we have natures and that those natures are natures which desire that love, that seek, that yearn, and that aspire to ends. And what we love, he says, will determine what we do. It will determine what we become like. For you image what you worship. You become like the things that are your chief occupations. And our natures, our hearts, because of sin, are damaged. They're bent in on themselves. And this means that our loves and our desires are disordered. And so what happens, what the grace of God does in regeneration and in sanctification is to heal our wounded and our misplaced desires. The Spirit of God renews life, reorders life, and reorders our loves. We love the wrong things, but we often love the right things in the wrong way or in the wrong proportion. Now, the reason that this whole move by Augustine here, this whole... um, way of seeing things in terms of desire is such a powerful way, a powerful frame to see Christian existence in, is that the very end, the very goal of our faith is communion with the triune God. The Father loves and delights in the Son. And in the Spirit, the Son loves and delights in the Father. 
And this communion of love and delight is the triune God. It's not just something the triune God happens to do. It is who God is. And so your destiny, your calling, is to love the Son as the Father loves the Son. And to love and delight in the Father as the Son loves and delights in the Father. All in and through the Spirit, who is the bond of this ordered, delightful, divine communion of life. That exalted aim is why God made creatures. And that and nothing less than that is why God acts to redeem and to reconcile and to heal creatures. And this is often obscured from us. Our text this morning helps with it, though. Our text is Psalm 84. This is a uh, beloved psalm. It's a love poem, really. It's a psalm about desire. It's a psalm about rightly ordered love. And it's a psalm which celebrates this journey to Jerusalem and to the house of God. And so we'll make three points. They're there in the outline. Desire, pilgrimage, and destination. First, desire. So Psalm 84, verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. Notice this, the first thought is an aesthetic thought. That is a thought pertaining to beauty. Something that might be in the realm, if you will, of the visual arts. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. The first thing evoked by the psalm is desire. Or passion. How lovely means here how beautiful or beloved is your dwelling place. The temple itself is beautiful. But its beauty lies primarily in the fact that it's the dwelling place. Right? It's the house, the local residence of the ever-ancient an ever new beauty of the Lord Almighty. Evangelical Christians, I think, do a reasonably good job with goodness, right? We, we kind of know what's morally right and wrong and what's truth. We kind of know what's true and what's false. But a much less job with the question of beauty, a much less good, robust account of things in the world with the question of beauty. Which is why you can be moral and right and unattractive. And why the church can be moral and right and unattractive. The recovery of the beauty, the sheer loveliness of God, is an important modern project. I won't expand on that now, but I think it's particularly helpful in the cultural situation that we're in. Um, So the temple... The temple's lovely because in the temple and through and with its architectural and its priestly and its musical beauty, there you can meet the God who is lovely. The God who is love is lovely. And God is called here for the first of four times, notice, in this psalm, four times, 
the Lord Almighty. Literally, the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. Two quick things about this title. It's interesting, isn't it, that in a psalm about the Lord's loveliness, that this is the dominant name used? It speaks of God's sovereign power over the armies of heaven and earth. It tells us that the beauty of God is not an effete, soft, harmless, inoffensive thing. It's terrible beauty. It commands heaven and earth. His beauty is powerful beauty. His power is beautiful power. The lovely one is the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of the armies of heaven. This is the other thing. We can talk about the power of God in general in the modern church reasonably well, I suppose. And and we can talk about the beauty of God, but rarely the beauty, the terrible beauty. Or the powerful beauty. Or the beautiful power. So, the second thing the Lord of hosts means is that the most beautiful, the most dreadful creatures that are not God, the heavenly hosts, those creatures worship this God. So that heaven is an assembly of radiant beings. Myriads upon myriads, we saw in the New Testament lesson, adoringly serving and worshiping the dreadful radiant one. They're irradiated beings, the hosts, by this unapproachable light. And this means that this Lord is Lord in the midst of the cherubim. That's what it means to call God the Lord of hosts. He's Lord in the midst of these radiant creatures, which the hammered cherubim on top of the ark represent and signify. The dwelling place, then, of God is lovely. And in verse 2, the psalmist says he yearns, he even faints for the courts of the Lord from which clearly he's been separated and to which he desires to return. This is the language of love. Yearning. It's the language of intense desire, even to the point of being spent, being at his end. It's the same thing you see in Psalm 42, where the language is, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul Thirsts for thee, O God. This is the language of people stranded in the desert. And here, desire then, it turns out, is not a small part of existence. It's a full-blooded, embodied reality. My heart, notice this in the text, my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. My inner and my outer self, my whole person, body and soul, thirsts, yearns, faints, cries aloud. It makes noise for the living God. For the God who is life itself, whose beauty is life-giving beauty. I have one singular passion 
the being of this one, the psalmist says. And so the language is visceral. That is, it comes from the deepest parts of the heart. But notice, it becomes visible and emotional and vocal. It's almost an embarrassment to what many think Christian emotional life is supposed to be. Where's the decorum? Where's the Presbyterian emotional stoicism? Where's the balance? Yearning, fainting, crying. Where's the balance? Where's the moderation? Heaven forbid we're not emotionally moderate for a few minutes. Where's the detachment? Well, when it comes to yearning for the courts of the Lord, decorum and moderation and detachment are not virtues. In fact, they may well be vices. They can be signs of a stunted religiosity. The psalmist does not say, you know, have a moderate, well-tempered desire for the house of God. But don't get crazy about it. So here, at the level, underneath all the other stuff we talk about, we get down to this level of yearning, fainting. That's always a good question to ask ourselves, right? What do you faint after? What are you panting for? At that level of desiring the beauty of God himself, this is the route where we can really be changed, where we can be transformed from glory to glory. Glory, by the way, being yet another aesthetic word. In that sense, the aesthetic is our destiny. You become like what you desire. If you desire God, you'll reflect his glory. And so, without, by the way, without this kind of desire, which we can't fake and we can't conjure, but thankfully with the word and the sacraments and prayer, the means of grace, we can cultivate it. Right? We can nurture it, nourish it. But without this kind of desire, the Christian life either becomes rote, dead religion or pure drudgery or both. Even if it terminates on something less than God that's noble and good, it becomes tedious. You know, the 19th century, great 19th century Scottish uh, pastor and social reformer Thomas Chalmers he wrote a wonderful piece entitled, the, the title will sound a little strange, I suppose, to, to our ears, but the title was The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And Chalmers' point was that moralism in the Christian life won't do. In other words, having a list of do's and don'ts or simply shunning bad things or some kind of negative piety. You need the expulsive power, meaning the power to expel bad stuff from your heart by a new affection. So you needed a new affection to displace the old affections. And and Chalmers writes essentially along these lines that to try and do the Christian life 
without this kind of reordering of our desires and our loves, it's a truly Augustinian peace, is going to be exhausting. Our hearts have to be, as John Donne said, ravished by the beauty of God. Then we can live the Christian life in such a way that doesn't grind us down. We need the expulsive power of new affections. And so oriented, so turned to the house of God is the psalmist that you can see this in verse 3. He envies even the sparrow and the swallow which have found a nest for their young near the altar of God, the altar being the place of atonement. It's like even them, Lord, even them, even the sparrow. Why not I? I like this old uh, Americana folk song called Lucky Old Son. It was written in 1949. Uh, It's been covered by dozens. Frank Sinatra had a big hit with it. And in it, there's a pilgrim, and he's he's weary. He wants to be taken across the river and lifted up to paradise. And he's he's exhausted, and and he essentially prays to God, lift me up to paradise Give me nothing to do. Make me like that lucky old son which just rolls around heaven all day. It's something similar to that that the psalmist is saying when he says, look, even the sparrow gets to be at your house. Even even the swallow. I mean, think of the sentiment here. He's saying, Lord, the birds, those blessed birds, they can make a nest by your altar, by the courts, and they can actually live there and they never have to leave. And they can see and they can watch and they can experience all the worship, the priests and the people and the musicians. Me, I have to journey. I have to wander at periodic intervals just to get a taste from afar. And then I have to leave and I have to go back home. He envies these birds flitting around by the temple. It's a very charming, really tender, even romantic expression of his desire for the house of God. How about you? I wonder if anyone here has written a poem about the blessed woodchucks who dwell about our sanctuary. You've seen them? Even the woodchucks, O oh Lord. Verse 4, verse 4 is a little less sentimental. And here he refers to humans, to the priests and the musicians who would rotate in and serve the Lord at the temple. He says, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, they are ever praising you. So blessed and happy here means having their desires and yearnings satisfied. That is the people whose calling it is to regularly dwell at God's house. They have the duty, the the summons, the glad duty of praising God. So notice, desire kindles praise and then praise kindles fresh desire. We don't sit around waiting till our desires are ravished. It's a circle. So, 
If it hasn't been clear, we should note that desire here is for God in his courts. Notice that. Desire for God has to translate into desire for public worship. The psalmist is not yearning for God to make his personal devotions better. He's yearning for God in his courts. The sparrows are not flitting around the outside of his study. They're flitting at the temple. He wants to be at the temple where the priests are and the musicians are. And so desire for public worship is what desire, rightly ordered desire for God, chiefly looks like. So that in yearning for the courts of the Lord, the courts and the Lord can never be separated. It's the courts of the Lord. So that's desire. Second point here is pilgrimage. The the psalmist desires the house of God. But remember, desire is a powerful force in life. It's not mere whimsy or sentiment. It leads to determination. Verse 6, blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. Or some translations say, in whose hearts are the highways to Zion. These sorts of people have highways, multiple lane highways to Zion in their heart. There's not a lot of off-ramps on these highways. It's a highway to Zion. And so desire is useless without obtaining the object desired. This is part of why we can't really fake desire. Either the object is desirable and ravishing to us or it's not. And when it is, what happens is desire sets a person off on a pilgrimage, a journey to the house of God. So the same hearts which are desiring hearts, yearning hearts, fainting hearts, here are hearts set, fixed on pilgrimage. Only strangers and aliens can desire God. Because God never becomes our property or our possession. He always remains out in front of us. As our future. He is himself our homeland. Our inheritance. And so desire sets out after the one who is our future. So desire creates pilgrims. Sojourners. And they're directed to Zion. Look at at verse 7. It says our chief desire is appearing before God in Zion. In the meantime, as pilgrims, we pass through these valleys. Baca in the text is unknown as to what it is. But in general, the text is speaking of dry places. Metaphorically of valleys, sorrows and tears, of discouragement and depression. Desire doesn't make everything better because the first thing desire does is it uproots a person. It reorients a person. Hope deferred, Proverbs says, makes the heart sick. Christians are homesick 
people. Love sick people because their hope is deferred. So much talk in the modern church about Jesus and how people are saved and the way modern songs are written acts as if almost everything's been taken care of and heaven is a blessed little footnote at the end. But it's wrong. We're saved into a place of pilgrimage, of desire, of waiting. And hope deferred makes the heart sick. And along the way, our desire is easily derailed and distracted and diverted. Pilgrims are assailed. (laughs) But thankfully, the section is not about heroic pilgrims. It's about weak people like us whose strength, verse 5 says, is in the Lord. The pilgrimage is beyond you and beyond me. Somehow in his strength, the text says, the dry valleys become a place of springs covered with pools of water. The promise here is this. The Lord will refresh your desire in the most inhospitable and unlikely of situations. That's what he's seeking to do if you're in one of those valleys this morning. Give you some water. Give you some water. He knows that our desire needs to be refreshed. And as the pilgrimage wears on, the text says we go from strength to strength. Strong in him. Strong in our weaknesses. So the goal, then, is the one to whom our loves and our affections are being reordered. He's the beginning, the middle, the end of the pilgrimage. Notice what the text does. It goes from desire through the desert to Zion itself. That is the Christian life. From desire through the desert to Zion. From him, through him, unto him are all things. And the end of this pilgrimage is appearing before God. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire, notice that, desire fulfilled is a tree of life. It's very hard to hope if you don't desire the object that you're supposed to be hoping for. Hope is a form of desire, and desire is a form of hope. So thirdly, here's the destination. He's arrived in Jerusalem, finally. He stops and he asks God to hear his prayer. He says, look with favor on our shield, O Lord, and look with favor on your anointed one. Petition concerns the king. It's quite possible in the way this worked out in Israel's life that the pilgrims came to Jerusalem, that the king met them, and then the king led them up into the temple. And as the king led them up into the temple, the pilgrims prayed for the king. And verse 10 makes it clear that this pilgrimage was worth it. Better, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper, he says, in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. The shortest amount of time and the most insignificant duty in the house of God is better than a long time in this honored status outside. 
So here's the, here's the psalmist. He was in love with the house. He was en route to the house. And now he's at home in the house. It's after all his father's house. He doesn't need to be a priest or a musician. He's happy to stand by the door and watch like the birds. He knows, the text says in verse 11, the Lord is a sun. A source of life and light and illumination. A source of energy and joy. That the Lord is a shield. He protects and defends pilgrims. Because pilgrims do not proceed unmolested to the destination. Out of his light, then, the text is saying, his light and his power, God gives himself to us. It's really the same beautiful power we saw at the beginning of the text. He bestows, the text says, favor and honor or better grace and glory. This is the fullness of God being poured out. Ultimately, in Jesus Christ, of whom it was said that, the, that in him the glory of God dwelt. Right? And from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. These words, grace and glory, speak of God's own benevolence, his bestowing, his radiance, his beauty upon his people. So this is a psalm which is trying to get us to see the light and glory of God and allow them to kindle something in us, to ravish us. I think this is just obscure. This is how we are as fallen creatures. Things obscure God from our vision. Things obscure him. But the sheer beauty of God is meant to stir us. And if it doesn't, then it's very hard to get the Christian life off the ground. So what was lovely and what was yearned for and what he cried out for was just this, to see and to appear before God. And he says, finally, in in this house, no good thing is withhold. And blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord God Almighty, the Lord enthroned in the midst of the cherubim. As I mentioned, this this all-beautiful, All desirable God becomes flesh and tabernacles among us in Christ. He himself, Jesus himself, is the temple. The courts where God dwells with man. And so the psalm is trying to kindle in you and I a kind of fresh, rightly ordered affection and passion for Jesus Christ. And it's right here. As the house, the new temple of Christ's body, that God pours out his goodness and his glory and his grace, withholding no good thing. God withholds no good thing from his people. Because he desires to draw us into the life and the love shared by the Father and the Son. And so what is liturgy about? Ultimately, it's about the healing and the reordering of our wounded desires. That is one way to put why we gather here. And so we've come, as the New Testament lesson says, to the heavenly Zion. And yet, we are still pilgrims. 
We are still strangers seeking the city which is to come in its fullness. And this for us means to desire Christ is to yearn for the fullness of his glory. This is why we faint and we groan and we cry out Maranatha. This is why we are turned toward the end. Because we want to see that face. We We don't want to see. It's frustrating for pilgrims who desire God, is it not, that right now, for all the glories of the new covenant, we see the face of God still veiled and hidden from us. Right? We get it in word. We get it in sacraments. We get it through the fellowship of the saints and worship. But we don't see him face to face. It's important to realize these things are here to kindle the desire for what they point to. His own transfigured splendor. That's the vision that we want. And that vision means his glorious everlasting city has descended. It means a new creation has come. And so as it is now, it will be then. The courts of the Lord means the courts and the Lord are inseparable. So it's good to take Psalm 84, ask ourselves about our desires. And to seek their healing and their purification by all the means God's appointed for us. It's good for us to love the house of God because it's the place where his glory dwells. So let us as pilgrims seek this coming city looking for and awaiting the consummation till, as the hymn says, till with the vision, glorious, the beatific vision, the vision of his beauty, our longing eyes are blessed. And the great church victorious, the church of pilgrims, shall be the church at rest. Amen.